Oh, that is a famous Christian song. Let's take our Bibles tonight and open up to the book of Philippians. Philippians, we're going to begin tonight a, a study on this great book. And it's only four chapters long, but boys, there are a lot of good stuff in here. Wow. So we're going to uh, uh, make, make our way through the first 11 verses tonight in chapter 1. And um, then we may finish off that chapter next week, or we may break that in two. We'll see how we do. I, um, <clears throat> I don't want to go so slow that people fall asleep, but I don't want to go so quick that we miss all of the goodies. So I'm trying to find a, uh, a little harmonious balance in there. And um, we'll see how we do. Well, again, let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Now, Heavenly Father, with our Bibles open before us, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and our instructor, our guide tonight. Help us to glean the, the nuggets and the riches that are found in this one book. It's only a couple of pages long, four little chapters, but it has so many good things. Please enrich and encourage and build our faith, because we know that faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Help each one of us, Lord, to glean from the scriptures tonight. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Well, <clears throat> tonight I'm going to start with a kind of an introduction to the book as a whole, and then we're going to get into chapter 1, and as I say, God willing, we'll get through the first 11 verses. But uh, here's some introductory comments. The author, of course, of Philippians is the Apostle Paul, and he's joined also by Timotheus, if you'll notice there in verse 1. Now, it's addressed uh, to the, the church that's at Philippi. The city of Philippi, and we've got a photo of that. Do we have the photo of the city of Philippi? Click. There we go. Well, ah, there you go. That, that looks just about right, doesn't it? That's a modern-day photo of an ancient city that's kind of not there anymore. No one lives there. Uh, the area is much larger in, in Greece. And uh, on the other side, the person taking the picture is standing up on a hill. And on the other side of the hill, there's a great big sprawling town and complex and so on. And there's a lot of stuff all around. But this would have been more of the actual town of Philippi. Of course, it looked a whole lot better 2,000 years ago in Paul's day. Um, <clears throat> but that, that gives you a little bit of an idea as to um, uh, what it looks like. Now, it was named after Philip of Macedonia. Who was Philip of Macedonia? He had a son, a famous son. Anyone know? What's that? I heard about three answers, I think. Alexander the Great, yeah. And so Alexander's daddy was Philip, and this is the town that was named after him, Philippi. Uh, I believe he named it in about 356 B.C. It was a major city on the road from Rome to Asia. And so when the Romans came to power and took over, in about 30 uh, B.C., Caesar Augustus made the town a Roman colony. And that really uh, beefed up the attendance the population. Um, there's other things uh, about it. They had access to some gold mines in the, in the, the area. And um, 
I believe it was Philippi who raided a lot of that. Anyhow, the church there at Philippi started in Acts chapter 16 during Paul's second missionary journey, somewhere in 49 to 52 AD. And uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy were making their way across Asia Minor, which is the area of Turkey. Do we have that uh, map? Can you put that map up for us? There we go. So that gives you a little bit of an idea of... Uh, that work? Yeah, there's the Mediterranean. Can you see that all right? The Mediterranean. Over here is Israel, and there's Jerusalem down there. And Paul's second missionary journey took him up here to Antioch, the city of Antioch, and then over to Tarsus and here into this area of, uh, of Turkey. And he's making his way across here, and he wanted to go to several places, but the Lord closed the doors and uh, didn't allow him to go into certain places. And so Paul ends up at this town uh, here called Troas. And so there he is with Silas and with Timothy. And uh, Luke is somewhere uh, around there at the same time. And that, anyhow, Paul has this vision in Acts chapter 15. Um, he has this vision of a man of Macedonia pleading, come over into Macedonia and help us. And immediately they went over to Macedonia. And Luke, having joined them at this time, and we'll just look back at the map for a moment. So they set sail, and they came over here in Neapolis, and then right up to Philippi, right in there. So that is where that, that town uh, of Philippi uh, kind of is still. And that's where uh, the church ended up starting. All right, we're done with that. Put that away. Now, two uh, famous converts, people who got saved. Uh, one was a woman, one was a man. Who, who was the woman? Lydia. Lydia, right. And she was a businesswoman, a seller of purple. It was very expensive clothing. Cloth, I should say. And so she, she was a, a religious woman and trying to reach out to God. And she was involved with prayer meetings. And so uh, Paul and his little band there, they found them and preached Christ, and they got saved. And then there was a, a man who got saved, and who was he? The jailer, right? Because Paul got arrested, and they beat him up, and they stuck him and Silas down in this miserable prison. And there was a jailer there. Then there was an earthquake, and you know the story. The jailer wanted to commit suicide. Uh, he thought all the prisoners had escaped. And so um, Paul said, do thyself no harm, we're all here. And so he called, the jailer called for a, a light, and he sprang in, fell down before him, and he said those famous words, say them with me, what must I do to be saved? Right. What must I do to be saved? And so he got saved. So there were others that got saved, and this church of Philippi got started. What a way to start a church, huh? How about that? Wow, we... So, anyhow, um, later it came time for Paul to leave, and it seems that Luke stayed on at Philippi, um, and the church at Philippi became a significant source of support for Paul the missionary, and that's something else that we're going to be learning in, in the, the book of Philippians. Now, 
On his third missionary journey in Acts chapter 20, Paul came and visited the church at Philippi again. Now, this uh, wonderful little letter, we call it a book. It's kind of a letter. Um, here's something. I don't know if you've heard this before. Uh, it's also called an epistle. You see? And the epistle of Paul, the apostle, to the Philippians. They say that uh, this is only a joke, but an epistle is the wife of an apostle. That's only a joke. But um, when they, they wrote these, you know, these books, the Word of God, it's called an epistle. <clears throat> the time and place of the writing, um, Philippians is considered one of Paul's four prison epistles. Called that because um, apparently he was in a Roman prison when he wrote these. So that includes Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. So, if this is true, then uh, Philippians would have been written 61 to 63 AD, something like that, from a Roman prison. Now, the purpose of this epistle, the church at Philippi had sent a gift to Paul there in Rome by the hand of Epaphroditus. Paul uses this occasion not only to thank them, but to comfort them concerning his situation as a prisoner for Jesus. And again, these are things we're going to see as we go through the book. And he also writes his plans to send Timothy and also why he thought it necessary to send Epaphroditus back to them again. Uh, there may have also been a problem with a couple of the ladies at the church. And so again, those are things we'll get to. Now the theme of the epistle throughout this uh, rather short personal little book here, there's a keynote that sounds again and again. And it is joy. This is a happy book. Five times the word joy is found, and the verb to rejoice is found 11 times in this book. Now, someone has called Philippians Paul's hymn of joy. And so uh, the theme seems to be rejoice in the Lord. In fact, turn a page or two to chapter 4, would you? And look at verse 4. Philippians 4.4. 4. Read that out loud together with me now, would you? Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Just want to point out a wonderful little difference that our King James Bible has, that modern Bibles don't, is the word always. And many think that it's either a typo or that it's some ancient archaic word, but uh, the, there's a difference between always and always. I've pointed this out before, and I'd like to say it again, because here it is here in the scripture. The word all way means all along the way, all along life's pathway. All ways refer, re, uh, refers to the times at all times, at all times, always, and all way, all along the way. So rejoice in the Lord all way, all along your way, your pathway in life. And again, I say rejoice. So that seems to be a key verse. And um, it's a very happy book. J. Vernon McGee has what I think is as good an outline on the book of Philippians as any that I've seen. And so we're going to borrow his uh, chapter titles for uh, each of the chapters here. And that takes us to chapter 1. And chapter 1 is the philosophy for Christian living. So that chapter title comes from J. Vernon McGee. 
Now, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Now, something that uh, I'd like to point out here is that you've got Paul, the older one, and uh, Timothy, the younger one. Now, notice that Paul refers to Timothy as Timotheus. That's more of his uh, proper official name, his full name. But you won't find uh, Paul using it, the, his proper long official name when he gets to First and Second Timothy because it's more personal. Those are very personal letters, almost between a father and a son. They believe that it was Paul that led Timothy to, to Christ. So Paul became like his father in the Lord. And so in those books of First and Second Timothy, they're very intimate, they're very personal. And that's why he uses the more familiar Timothy, whereas here and in other places, he uses the proper Timotheus. So um, he refers to himself, Paul, and he refers to his, um, uh, his right-hand man there, uh, Timothy, as servants. He, he calls him and Timothy servants. And uh, there's different kinds of servants in the world. The uh, word that Paul chose was a Greek word, doulos, or doulos, and it, uh, it refers to the lowest type of servant or, or slave. Um, in a, a wealthy home, there would be different types of servants. Even today there are. You'd have like the, uh, the, the head butler. He might be the guy in charge of the whole household. And then you'd have different types of servants that would do different jobs throughout the house. Uh, perhaps in the kitchen, you'd have a couple of different types of servants, maybe the chief cook and the assistant cook. Uh, then you might have the... Uh, the chambermaids and so on who would look after the rooms and um, you would have then maybe the lowest level of servant. And this would be the guy who would have to crawl in and clean out the, the, the coal furnace or crawl up in the rafters with the spider webs and everything and clean all that out. And this is the job given to the, the lower level, the lower echelon servant. That's the word that Paul chose for himself and for Timothy. Lulos, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ. Well, do you consider yourself a servant of Jesus Christ? And if you do, what kind of servant do you consider yourself? Do you consider yourself the chief butler in the Lord's house? Do you consider yourself the chief cook? Do you consider yourself the chief chambermaid or chamberlain or something? Or do you consider yourself a little lower than that? Anyhow, that's, that's how Paul uh, refers to himself. And notice he writes, he's writing to all the saints, those are the, the Christians, all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi with the bishops. Bishops, those are the pastors and the deacons. Then he begins and he says, grace be unto you. Now, Paul was big on God's grace. Grace, we've defined this more than once, but essentially it's God's being very, God being very pleased to open his arms, to you know, reach into his pockets for you and to give you his power and his blessings and plenty of them. That's grace. 
you ask me, uh, is that something I'm interested in? Boy, I tell you, both my hands go up. I'm interested in God's grace every day. I want to get God's grace to get through a day, let alone through a week. I need God's grace. But it doesn't stop there. There's something else I need, and you too. He says, grace be unto you and peace. And peace is something, if you don't got it, it doesn't seem to matter how much of the grace you have. You're not, you're not going to last without the peace. Keep your finger there in Philippians, would you please? Turn back to the Gospel of John. John chapter 14. Would you turn there now? John chapter 14. Now here we have the words of the Lord Jesus in John 14 and verse 27. Verse 27, I'd like you to read that out loud with me now, please. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Now the word peace is the word irene, and it's from where we get the woman's name Irene. The female name Irene means peace or peaceful. And the idea here means tranquility. It means security. So if you go back here to Philippians, this is the very kind of peace that God wants for you and for me. Now, how often we lose that. We go through the day and maybe we'll start okay, get up in the morning, things are going all right. You know, have a nice breakfast or something. We get ready. We get out the door. We get down into our car. And we get pulled out on the road and, boy, there's that idiot again. Oh, man, how does he find me? Somehow he gets in front of me and he's so slow. Come on, come on, come on. What happened to our peace? Well, it was short-lived, wasn't it? You know that peace, grace and peace are something that God wants you to have. You don't have to go begging him for it. He wants you to have them. He wants me to have them. Because with them, we can live for Jesus. Without them, oh, we'll get messed up. We'll just fall by the wayside. We'll end up living for the world and the flesh. Ooh, who knows, even the devil. But with grace and peace, wow. I don't think there's anything we can't do as long as it's God's will. But we have to have grace and peace. And so this is what he wishes upon the believers there at Philippi. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he starts in verse 3 and he says something amazing. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Isn't that nice? Isn't that a wonderful thing? Don't you like it when someone says that to you? I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. If someone came up to you and shook your hand and says, Wow, I thank God for you. How would that make you feel? Would that fill you with hope and fill you with joy? Or would that make you feel upset? Would that make you feel like quitting, wanting to go back home? Let me out of this place. No, you'd be happy if someone said that to you. Came up to you and, you know, maybe put their arm around your shoulder and said, you, you just don't know how I thank God for you. Wow, that, that's really encouraging, isn't it? Isn't that great? Well, here's how Paul felt about the people at that church. And it wasn't a perfect church either. They had their problems. Wherever you have people together, you always have problems. They say you get two people together, you're going to have three opinions. I don't know how the math works, but it just seems that way. I remember hearing someone who 
gave a short little talk, a very, very short talk, and he said, okay, are there any uh, questions, comments, or yelling? <laughs> yelling, did you catch that? He threw that in there for those who like to yell, I suppose. But uh, <clears throat> I thank God upon every remembrance uh, of you. Say, uh, do people thank God for you and I? They say that some people, um, for some people, when, when they walk into a room, you know, they thank God for them. And for other people, when they're walking out, they thank God for them. <laughs> they're leaving. So do people thank God you're coming? Or do they thank God you're leaving? That's an interesting question, isn't it? But um, anyhow, he thanks the Lord for all of those dear folks at Philippi. And then... In verse 4, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making request with joy. <clears throat> and uh, that's the part, of the part and parcel of your prayer closet, where you're praying one for another. Verse 5, he's praying for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Now that word fellowship is important. The whole idea of a fellowship is where people are putting things in. Um, the word was used to speak of men in business who would come together. And one man would say, well, I'll put in $1,000. Another man says, I'll put in $1,000. A third man comes and he may say, well, I don't have $1,000 to put in, but listen, I'll do all the legwork. I'll run around and I'll do all the heavy lifting. But each one has something they put in. And that is what fellowship is. When you come to church... You ought to take part in the hymn singing. You ought to take part in the Bible reading. You ought to take part in the greeting of one another. You ought to take part in the offering. You ought to take part in the prayers. Because that makes you part of the fellowship. The fellowship. For those who just come and sit and do absolutely nothing, they're not part of the fellowship. They may physically be in the church, but they're not part of the fellowship. A fellowship is kind of a, a living, alive kind of thing where each one puts something in. They have some input. So you have to think, what's my input? How am I serving Jesus? What kind of ministry or job am I doing for the Lord? Every Christian needs to get involved uh, in the local church and be involved doing things in order for us to really have a fellowship Otherwise, what ends up happening is we become like some modern church where you have the professionals down front and all the spectators uh, sitting in the, uh, the bleachers. And it's almost like a sports game. Well, you know, these uh, guys out on the playing field, they're all millionaires running around. <laughs> and you get all tens of thousands of fans up there just watching them perform. They're, those, those uh, nine or 18 guys down on the playing field are doing all the work. Everyone else is just watching. And a lot of churches go that way. And you get the paid professionals that are doing everything, and no one else is doing anything. And it ought to be that way. That's not the, the idea of a, of a church. The church is more like a family, where everyone is there and in, involved. Some a little more, some a little less. Some have things that others can't do, but everyone does something. So this idea of the fellowship, very important. And verse 6 is a very important verse. 
Paul wrote, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, the good work, these are God's purposes for the Christian life. And they're always good. And sometimes they don't go the way we think they should go. Sometimes God does things we don't understand why he's doing them at the time. And that's why we've got other scriptures like Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good. See, there's the, the good work there. To them that, are the, uh, them that love God. To them that are the called according to his purpose. And so Paul writes about the good work being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. The day of Jesus Christ is the rapture. Now someone might say, well, wait a minute. Pastor, he wrote that letter to a church at Philippi 2,000 years ago, and that church is gone, 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 and the rapture hasn't happened yet. So what does that mean? Well, this may be a long shot, but has it ever occurred to us that the saints of Philippi are all up in heaven serving the Lord, still doing a good work until the day when the rapture comes? Have we thought about that? When someone gets saved and they, they die and they, they end up in heaven, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There's no purgatory, amen? Right, hallelujah. It's instant. We die and we're with the Lord. But we're not just going to sit around on a cloud, you know, strumming a harp. We've got service to do. That's why Jesus, when he taught us to pray, he said, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So God's will must be actively being carried out in heaven, even as we speak. Well, who's carrying it out? Well, not just the angels, but it's the saints up there as well. So maybe quite literally when he wrote, being confident of this very thing that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Quite possibly that good work is still going on. That's interesting. You know what? God's not finished with us yet. Sometimes that thought will occur to a Christian. Oh, I'm no good. God can't use me. I, I'm, I'm washed up. I'm a has-been or something. Uh, he can't use me. Oh, I got to sneeze there. Sorry. Well, <clears throat> yeah, I heard uh, years ago, I, I, was in a, I was in a meeting. It was hilarious. It was, it was late at night. We were all tired. It was a church meeting. We were all feeling good. And the guest speaker, he was quite, a, quite an orator. He really had us on the edge of his seats. Edge of the seats. Anyhow, while he was preaching, someone let out a sneeze. And it wasn't one of these little, it wasn't one of those things. It was one of these, one of those great big ones, right? And uh, without missing a beat, you know, the guy, whoa, did a double take back. And uh, he says, well, he said, I don't know what it is, but I know what it's not. <laughs> I guess you had to be there. Boy, that was a terrible joke, wasn't it? Yeah, let's wipe that one off and keep going, shall we? All right. I'll save that sneeze for another sermon. How about that? Uh, well, he says in verse 7, uh, Even as it is meet, that's proper, even as it is meet for me to think this of you, 
because I have you in my heart in as much as both in my bonds and in the defense of the confirmation of the gospel, you're all partakers of my grace. The bonds. That's why we believe that Paul was in prison because he was in bonds, bondage, shackles, chains. And he said that, uh, he, uh, he says this in the context of it being part of grace. And uh, that's interesting, because I believe that's part of the good work that uh, he may be referring to in verse 6. Just, you know, just because uh, uh, something go- goes wrong or goes some other way that we don't want it to go, doesn't mean that it's not of the Lord. Uh, it doesn't mean that the devil's winning and God is losing. I believe that God is uh, very sovereign and that God knows what he's doing. And when it comes to our lives, it's very, very critical that we understand that all things work together for good. That Romans 8.28 comes back into play here. Even in bonds, even in bonds. But what if I, well, verse 8, he says, For God is my record, how greatly I long after you in the bowels of of Jesus Christ. The word bowels refers to the deepest parts. And it's an interesting word here. Paul uses it also. Tell you what. um, Keep your finger there in Philippians. Turn to the right. And find Philemon. See if you can find Philemon. I'll give you just a moment. Now remember Philemon was one of the four prison epistles. Philemon is just a a little bit of a letter, 25 verses long, very short, but it's very interesting. We're going to deal with that one day. Very, very interesting little book in the New Testament. But I want you to see verse 12 because uh, Paul uses this same word here. He says, whom I have sent again. Now this is uh, Onesimus here. Um, He's sending Onesimus back to Philemon. Um, so verse 12, whom I have sent again, thou therefore receive him, that is mine own bowels. He was referring to this runaway slave whose name was Onesimus, that he had met in Rome and led him to the Lord. He got saved and he became so dear to the Apostle Paul. And Paul wrote a letter back to Philemon and he said, receive him. It's like receiving mine own bowels. That's the very deepest part. If you go back to Philippians, uh, Paul wrote here about uh, the, the bowels of Jesus Christ, and he's referring to the deepest part of Jesus. He's talking about his, his most tenderest feelings. This, this really exposes the heart of the apostle. He really honestly had a heart for these people. He didn't just write, oh yeah, I love you. He really meant it. And uh, he's expressing it in in these verses here. Now, verses 9, 10, and 11, I want you to see that there's a a sort of a progression here um, over these um, three verses with uh, some of the words. So he says, And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, Knowledge is to be able to see what God is doing in our lives, what God is doing in this world. That's knowledge. What's going on in this world? 
But we need to understand it as God understands it and see it as God sees it, and that's knowledge. And then judgment is to make good choices based on that knowledge, based on knowing that God is actively at work. Now we can make good, good decisions because that's literally what judgment comes to. You make a decision. The judge, he sends or lays down his judgment and he makes a decision. This one goes to jail, this one gets off, this one pays a fine, this one goes on probation, whatever. He makes decisions, and that's what judgment is all about. And uh, some people are not very good at judgment. Some people make the worst decisions in the world. And for that, we'll go back to the book of Romans. So keep your finger there in Philippians, go back to Romans, chapter 1 this time. Chapter 1. Uh, let's see here. Uh, in chapter 1, starting in verse 18, Paul writes about the wrath of God and how it's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And he starts going through these verses. And he gets into verse uh, 21, and he says, But when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. Oh boy, there's a lesson for us folks. Let's always be thankful to God but became vain in their imaginations. That's exactly what will happen to you and I when we cease to be thankful to God. We'll become vain, empty in our imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. And our hearts will be darkened too if we walk that path. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts, the creeping things. These are the idols that men and women have come up with. Uh, wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness. And um, verse 25, they changed the truth of God into a lie. Verse 26, for this cause, God gave them up to vile affections. Woo! Verse 27, even the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another. Verse 28, this is what I want you to see. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. A reprobate mind. To do those things which are not convenient. A mind that makes bad decisions. To do things that are not good. This, uh, this term here, reprobate mind, Paul wrote using um, the Greek words, adokamos nous. And adokamos nous means literally a mind that cannot distinguish between right and wrong. You show them a bunch of things, pick the right one. Uh, they have to guess. They don't know. You know, and, and I mean, it's crazy. We could say, well, night and day, black and white, you know, pick, pick one, uh, and they pick the wrong one. Up and down, you know, big and little, they pick the wrong one. Right and wrong, they pick the wrong one. Because they don't ha they're not able to. They got a mind that just doesn't understand. They, they look at it, and they look at it, and they look at it, and they, they pick the wrong one. They always seem to pick the wrong one. Because God gave them over to have that kind of mind. Have you ever made dumb decisions? Real dumb decisions in your life? 
And afterwards you said, oh, that was dumb. Why did I do that? Why did I pick that? Why did I buy that? Why did I go there? Oh, why did I say yes? I should have said no. Why did I say no? I should have said yes. Have you ever made dumb decisions and you regretted them afterwards? Usually, for us Christians, the reason we make dumb decisions is because we don't spend enough time in prayer. Hey, did you pray about it? Oh, I prayed about it. Well, what does that mean? Well, I said, Lord, uh, if you don't want me to go to bingo, uh, just make sure my car doesn't start. And my car started. Oh, boy, that was a dumb... Anyhow, uh, these people here, they have this avocamos noose. They, they're not able. They got a mind that, that cannot distinguish between right and wrong. That's, that's pretty bad when you're in that situation. But, uh, you know, that's a situation I think the devil wants all of us in. When it comes to choosing the right and refusing the wrong, he doesn't want us to do that. And he wants to cloud the issue, and he wants us to make the us think that we're missing out on fun, we're missing out on some of the, the joys of life and the pleasures of life. The, the, the devil wants to, to make us think that we're going to be the losers, that we're never going to have any joy and fun in life. And so he says, listen, why don't you just do these things in secret? Why don't you do them in, on the side? Why don't you go to some other place, some other church or some other institution or something where they allow that kind of thing? Why don't you do that? And then you can... Then you can have all the fun. He never shows us the end of these things. These so-called fun things. And the people who spend all their lives at worldly pleasures. And how they end up. He never shows us that. It's like the beer commercials. You know on TV they show you all of these young, healthy, handsome and beautiful people. You know with their choice of beer in their hand. They don't show you the big pot bellies. You know, and the, the beer bloated bodies and the bloodshot eyes and the sclerosis of the liver and all that kind of stuff. The devil doesn't show you the end of the road. He just shows you the beginning. And someone with uh, a reprobate mind or an avocamos noose, you can't tell right from wrong. And so they're going to walk the wrong path. Now, if we take this back, please, to Philippians. And here, the prayer in verse 9 is that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. Because sometimes on a daily basis, you have to make decisions. Perhaps for some of you, you know, coming to church tonight was a decision you had to think about. Well, should I? Shouldn't I? Should we? Shouldn't we? Hey, kids, what should we do tonight? Should we go to church tonight? Listen, the day you let your kids make those decisions for you, boy, the day you need to come in and get some counsel. You don't let your kids make grown-up decisions. The kids are supposed to follow the, the adults who are supposed to make proper, godly, grown-up decisions. Uh, that's why the kids have parents, otherwise they wouldn't need us, would they? But they do. And so uh, the prayer here is for us to be able to make good judgment. Verse 10 that ye may approve things that are excellent. And there really are things that are excellent in this world, and sometimes they don't look excellent. They're, they're covered. They're, they look very humble and simple, but yet they're excellent. They excel. They're wonderful things. You know, I'll tell you one wonderful thing is reading your Bible. 
A lot of people look at the Bible and they say, oh, that dusty old book. Oh, listen, you know, I, I'm not so good on the these and the thous. Oh, and I'm a busy man. I got things to do in the morning. I got places to go, people to see. I got phone calls to make. Oh, listen, I got meetings. I just don't have time. Boy, there's an adhokamos noose. There's a mind that can't make a good decision. To approve something excellent is to look upon your Bible and your Bible reading time your, t- your time together with the Bible, your time together with the Lord on your knees in your prayer closet, and to approve that as something excellent, and to put your stamp on it. You know, in church, when you say amen to something, you're giving your stamp of approval. You're saying, I believe that. You're saying, so be it. You're saying, yeah, that's, that's true. My father-in-law, he's with the Lord now for 20 20 years, I guess, going on 20 years. You went, This June, it'll be 20 years, won't it, that my wife's dad went home to be with the Lord. And he was a godly man. But he was uh, pretty much blind in the last years of his life. And I was talking with him and trying to pick his brain a little bit and get some of his wisdom. And um, I kind of wanted to find out, well, what, what, Dad, what kind of things, you know, can you do for the Lord? What, what are you doing? How are you serving the Lord? And he gave me a little wisdom there. Because here's a man who loves the Lord, but he's blind. He can't, he couldn't act as a, an usher, you know, or a greeter. or He couldn't do a lot of things. But he said that just being in church and saying amen at the right time gives public approval that these things are right. Those were his words. These things are so, they are right. And he knew what he was talking about. That's this verse 10, approving things that are excellent. And that's why in church, if you hear something that you think is excellent, you ought to voice that. You ought to say amen. Well, do I have to shout at the top of my lungs? No, in fact, please don't. Uh, I, I would even be willing to pay you to be quiet. But, uh, you know, maybe there's the person beside you is the only one that's going to hear you say amen. Well, you, you just blessed somebody. Someone got blessed by your amen. So just a thought there, but to approve the things that are excellent. Now, remember in verse 7, he talked about being in chains, in bonds. And those bonds were also an excellent thing. We don't see it that way because we're not seeing it as God sees it. But God had the Apostle Paul the greatest missionary Christian statesman in all the world at that time, stuck in a Roman prison for a period of a couple of years. Why? What's the good of that? What possible good could come of that? Well, I'll tell you something that came of that. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. There's something good came of it. I'll tell you something else also. Onesimus got saved, and there was a whole lot of other good things that happened. They say when God closes a door, he opens a window. So here the Apostle Paul was stuck there. Hey, we could even take this a little further. What about a Christian who's blind or a Christian who's deaf or a Christian who's crippled or a Christian who's financially poor, devastated, we'll say, or a Christian who's in a wheelchair or something like that. These are things that can be absolutely excellent in the will of God. So he says that he may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere, sincere, pure in heart before God, that's the idea there, sincere and without offense 
till the day of Christ. There it is again. There's the rapture. That's when Jesus is going to come, folks, in the clouds, and he's going to take us home. You say, oh boy, that sounds like a miracle. That's exactly what it is. It's a miracle. It's going to be one of those miracle of miracles. But why should that startle us? The creation of the world, isn't that a miracle? When was the last time you went back and read Genesis chapter 1? Is that not a miracle? When God brought Israel out of Egypt, was that not a miracle? When he brought them uh, uh, um, over the, the Jordan into the promised land, that was a miracle too, wasn't it? When Jesus raised the dead, was that not a miracle? God is a God of miracles. And at the right time, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, is going to come back into the clouds, into the air. He's going to catch us up and we will be with him. Hallelujah. There's the day of the Lord right there. You know, it's so very important here that your heart and my heart be right with God. This is so important and it's so integral to this, not just the book of Philippians, but to the entire Bible. Uh, godly character is at the heart of being a Christian. You show me someone who says they're a Christian and they're living for the world and the flesh and the devil, boy, I'll show you someone who's either deceived or a liar or I don't know what they are, but they're, they're sure not being what they ought to be. Godly life is at the heart of being a Christian. Our honesty, get a load of this, our honesty must not depend upon our circumstances. In the United States, uh, back in the days of slavery, and I think we're all familiar with that, and that's a uh, black eye on America, I know that, but for many, many, many years, they were involved in the slave trade. And there's a story that says that back in those horrible days of slavery, there was a, a black man being auctioned off in a southern town in the town square. And this is how they would do it. The guy would come in with a group of black slaves and he'd bring them one at a time up on an auction block and he would auction them off. That was his job. There was there that day, amongst others, there was a wealthy plantation owner who walked up to the black man and said to him, Listen, if I buy you and take you to my beautiful home, will you, will you be honest and good? And the black man looked at him and said, I'll be honest and good whether you buy me or not. His character shone through. And same with you and me. We ought to be honest and good. Whether the uh, circumstances uh, would be better if we just kind of told a lie. No, we're going to be honest and good. Because it's Christ in us, folks. And that the heart of the Christian life has got to be Christ. And Jesus is honest. Amen? You agree with that one? Yeah. Well, he finishes off in verse 11, and so, so will we. Um, he says here, being filled with the fruits of righteousness. Boy, that sounds good, doesn't it? which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. The fruits of righteousness. Oh, we like that. That sounds good. But I want you to know something. If you know anything about farming and fruit farming, 
You can't have the fruit without the pruning. There's pruning involved, isn't there? Maybe some of you here have um, plants or something and you prune them at home. Or maybe you've had a fruit tree and you have to prune it. Well, with vines, you have to prune those things. If you want a real good harvest, you've got to prune them. And pruning uh, involves cutting. Cutting off the dead branches and doing things that the master husbandman knows how to do. And the Lord is that master husbandman in our lives. And sometimes he will cut things off. He says, listen, if you keep this, it's going to stunt your growth. We need to cut that off. Okay, Lord, I surrender to you. And he cuts that off. And off it goes. And sure enough, we grow. God knows what he's doing. There's been many, many phenomenally successful Christian missionaries and pastors and just great Christians that have allowed the Lord to cut certain things off in their lives. Get rid of those things. Jettison those things. The Apostle Paul was one of them. In fact, at one point he said, I count all, all things but loss. Right? You remember reading that? Yeah. All the things of the world, they have no hold on me. That's what Paul was saying. So let's conclude the matter here. Paul was always very considerate of all the people in the churches that he started and all the souls he won. Paul was a gentleman. And we too need to be godly and very careful how we treat each other. This is a very important crop of people here tonight. This is the Lord's harvest. We are the Lord's people and we need to treat one another with extra care. A loving church makes all the difference in this old world. And like Paul and Timothy, let's just go back to being servants. It's when we want to be something big. You know, I want to be the chief. I want to be the the big stuff. That's when the problems happen. If we would all just humble ourselves, I think that God will give us all the joy we want all our days. Let's pray.